0: Hello there, welcome to episode number 119 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode we hear from Magdalena Zaborowska, Professor of Literature at the University of Michigan and author of James Baldwin's Turkish Decade, Erotics of Exile, published by Duke University Press. The book focuses on the years between 1961 and 1971, when the great African American author James Baldwin spent extensive periods of time living and working in Istanbul. The book looks at what Baldwin did here, who he spent time with, how it was reflected in his literary work, and how it shaped his developing understanding of race. But before we get going, first let me remind you once again that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts, In English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that we send out to members with every new episode. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Magdalena Zaborovska. James Baldwin became friends with the Turkish actor Engin Jezar in New York in the 1950s. He first came to Istanbul in 1961, arriving without prior notice one night at Jezar's door while Jezar was hosting a glittering party with the great and the good of Istanbul Artistic and Intellectual Society. So I started by asking Magdalena Zaborovska to sketch out the trajectory of Baldwin's life up to that moment and to talk about why he chose to come to Istanbul.
1: If you think of the literary trajectory up to the early 60s, he had published quite a bit and accomplished quite a bit with his first novel and his second novel. So Go Tell It on the Mountain, 1953, Giovanni's Room, 1956, then the collection Notes of a Native Son. And he's been working on the novel that became another country for a very long time. There were drafts, there were ideas, there were sort of treatments and outlines of it, bits and pieces of manuscript that he had been working on for a decade. So literally, by 1961, when he gets to Istanbul, to Engin Jazar's house, to that sort of party that so vividly uh, has been described by by Jazar in our interview and that I tried to describe in the book, Baldwin feels he's really kind of lost because that novel is not coming together So we've had Baldwin in France between 1948, when he left, and 1957, when he returns to the United States to participate in the civil rights movement, and when he also takes his first trip to the South, the American South, where, as he writes in one of the essays, he finds himself a strange foreigner almost as if an immigrant in the kind of an old country as a northerner, but also someone who lived in mostly Western Europe, for nearly a decade and who for the first time goes below the Mason-Dixon line and cannot quite place himself there. So he finds himself in a very strange situation. So I want to put together this biographical arc and the authorial arc where we have the shock of being in the South, the shock of thinking through lynchings, researching it, reading about it, being very afraid and being also someone who, as a man, is not tremendously macho. So by the later 50s, meaning 57, 8, 9, Baldwin also gets to know Engin-Jazar in New York City. And because his second novel, Giovanni's Room, Is adapted uh, for a theater performance. He works on a production. He doesn't direct it. He is simply involved in it with the actor's studio, the very famous theater enterprise. And uh, he has misgivings about who's playing whom. And then encountering Engin Chazar is thrilled that here is a young man who can perfectly fit the picture of giovanni so at that moment the very late 50s baldwin's impatient with not being able to work with his writers blog and because jazar uh, returns to istanbul and they correspond about baldwin coming to visit on and off for a couple of years uh, that is a possibility and Baldwin takes a trip to Istanbul after having been in the Middle East, specifically in Israel, and shows up without notice, again, before cell phones, probably he didn't think of sending a telegram. Uh, he simply shows up at Engin Shazar's doorstep. That is a celebration of Engin's wedding with Gulis with Gürlis Sururi, and uh, there's a big party which has the creme de la creme of Turkish intelligentsia, intellectuals, uh, artists, uh, theatre folk, musicians, and makes a great impression and a great entrance. And then he gets a guest bedroom, a tiny room, where he is sort of residing, but also writing very rapidly because in this new environment among exciting new people, very urbanized, remember, back then in the 60s with very secular, very progressive culture and very interesting art world, Baldwin really found himself in an exceptionally exciting and exceptionally open culture, open scene of human exchange, of creativity, of intellectual vigor. As Engine Cesar told me, he said, oh, you know, and then he went to his little room and then he was writing. And then every day he would emerge and read us pages of his manuscript and he would sleep through the day because he would work through the night. And there was that sort of urgency and that intensity that he brought to his work where you can see the sort of biographical and authorial arcs coming together with passion and excitement of a new place but also with curiosity and openness. And I'm not trying to romanticize this. I am very aware that he was in many ways, however, oppressed as a black queer man in the US, he was also a holder of an American passport. And he was aware that American power follows you everywhere, that his passport issued by a superpower affords him certain luxuries and certain allowances, affordances that the Turkish people around him do not have. So I think it it was a wonderful situation for him to really rethink. And Turkey gave him both the space and stimulation to engage much more deeply into analyses of identity and coming up with a concept of identity that is such signature Baldwin and that people are embracing all over the world these days, finally.
0: And he stayed here for a decade, uh, as the book's title suggests, or rather states, Uh, but he wasn't permanent here. He sort of lived between Turkey and the U.S., essentially going back for extensive periods, both to visit, family, and to work. And uh, also, you know, of course, this was the civil rights era, so he was very active there. I mean, how did he balance his time between Istanbul and his commitments in the U.S.?
1: I think that uh, the concept of transatlantic commuter that has been used quite widely uh, would be helpful here. So if you recall the voiceover, the soundtrack from James James Baldwin from Another Place, the film that Sadat Pakai released in 1973, In that soundtrack, Baldwin talks about the impossibility of working for sustained periods of time when he's in the United States because so many people are around him. He loves socializing. He has a large, gregarious family. Uh, He simply cannot find the solitude and focus. And he cannot be left alone in the ways that were possible and, and very much were enabled by his friends in Turkey. In the film, Baldwin says, I go and I come back. I go and I come back. So it was A Turkish decade on and off writers, and of course, every person, every writer has a different routine. But I think the key to getting the work done is to finding places where you feel at home, where you feel safe, where you feel nurtured, and where you can get the work done. And Turkey became such a place, and if you look at the output over the 60s, of perhaps the most quote-unquote American works Baldwin created, it was during that decade. And I think very clearly Baldwin could not feel safe and nurtured in the United States as a writer, and that's why he had to be away and find transitory homes elsewhere.
0: As you say there, he worked very efficiently here in Istanbul, and that was really the attraction for him of living here. You describe it in the book as a voluntary exile that allowed for, Mm -hmm. quote, artistic incubation and discovery that resulted in new ways of seeing and conceptualizing African-Americanness across the Atlantic. So really, you do get this sense in the book about this era. It really liberated him artistically. It got him essentially out of a hole that he felt that he was in before he came.
1: Absolutely. It sounded so nice. I I forgot I wrote it in those exact words. It's been a while. So thank you. That's, that's actually a very and much more concise statement. And of course, Istanbul opened up this whole new world to Baldwin. And he was able to actually step back from his situation, from his position as a Black American, as a Black subject in diaspora, in this sort of larger world, the Black Atlantic. And remember, in Paul Gilroy's work, in other scholars' work, Turkey does not exist as a location for artists like Baldwin. So what I'm trying to say here is that it struck me when I was working on that book that the world, and you know about American culture, I think, is really based on binary conceptions and approaches to identity. So, you're either white or black, you're either male or female, you're either gay or straight, or Republican or Democrat, this kind of stuff. And the whole idea of the world at the time, in mid-20th century, was that you have a juxtaposition of the so-called first world, or the West, and the rest, which is the third world, right? But Turkey, places like Poland, You know, the satellite countries of the Soviet bloc at the time, we were kind of lumped together into this uneasy entity of the second world. And Baldwin didn't know much about Turkey, he didn't really have expectations, so he found himself orientalizing the place, because Orientalism, like other binary approaches to this first versus third world binary, that's what basically he grew up with, and that's what his conception of the world was. So that's why I found his change of thinking that I trace on another country in the novel. He literally soaked in... The atmosphere, but also the lessons and the surprises and the astonishment of the place. And it really helped him finish the book. And because of his location, when you reread another country, you find these moments of sort of orientalist imaginary. You find moments of comparisons, a fantastic scene in his short story, This Morning, This Evening, So Soon, where the main character is returning to the United States and suddenly there is a view of New York City, and it looks like a you know exotic city of the East. And that's in the short story, and in another country, there is also a similar scene. So, so there is a sense that he found in that in-between location of the second world, a very nurturing, very peaceful place to recharge and do his work, and really excel, at the same time as he also grew as a person, as an intellectual new can almost feel Jimmy Baldwin like the sponge soaking in the new culture, some of the new language. He never spoke Turkish fluently, but he knew enough words to sort of manage greetings and even in the directing of the play, Dushanin Dostu, he had enough Turkish to kind of follow the translation, but of course he worked with a translator. So even though he did not immerse himself linguistically in Turkish as much as he had before in French, He really found a place that nurtured him and that provided that sort of stimulation for creativity, for expression, and for self-examination, which was part of the vision of his kind of humanism, the mid-20th century humanism that he was a proponent of in his works.
0: One of the really striking things uh, is that Baldwin didn't really write much at all about Istanbul or Turkey. He really, throughout his time here, kept his focus resolutely on the U.S. throughout this whole period. All his work continued to be about the U.S., set in the U.S., writing about American themes. And that is probably the defining feature of his life in Istanbul, really, his focus on the U.S. There's one bit in the documentary that we're mentioning there by Sadat Pakai, uh, where Baldwin says quote, one sees one's country better from a distance, from another place, from another country. Stranger, I suppose it did distinguish him from other figures, I suppose, you know, the fact that he was here for a decade, but he really didn't see it fit to pronounce, you know, about what was happening here. He kept his focus completely on uh, what was going on back in the US.
1: Right. And I think if you read the works he created there deeply, you see the impact, you see the inflection that being in that place had on him. So he wrote a lot. He worked through a lot of ideas. He created a sort of new lens on sexuality and gender. But I think what happens is, you know, Baldwin could not, he didn't have time to grow into Turkey and to learn enough to write about it. In my conversation with Engin Shazar, he said, oh, I'm sure he would have written it. He was very aware of these issues, but he needed time to learn, to digest. And I think as he used to quite colourfully put it in his letters, vomit up the anguish. And that's actually the phrase from several essays where he talks about writing as a coming to terms with what's torturing you but also what is making you human, what is making you a person in a given moment in time, in a given place geographically but largely as an accident of genetics and geography and I think it was precisely in Turkey where Baldwin had the freedom because of this completely new place to on the one hand vomit up the anguish about Americanness, about the US, about gender, class sexuality and race and racist oppression at the same time as he was evolving a new conceptualization of what it is to be human in the world. So from the Fire Next Time, where he talks about the Cold War, where he talks about the standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States, before that, through the very intimate analysis of sexuality, gender, race in another country, through later works, tell me how long the train's been gone Uh, no name in the street he really is evolving a very very sophisticated vision of humanity in an international context and I think without Turkey that would not have happened Baldwin discovered a location that was unlike any other and he was able to really come to a much more sophisticated vision of identity uh, which is you know one of the chief preoccupations of both. Fiction and non fiction.
0: There's a really interesting passage in the book where you compare Baldwin to some other canonical American expat writers who spent extended periods abroad. Uh, You say quote unlike the white male hero figures of 20th century American literary history, Hemingway, Fitzgerald and James, from whom Baldwin distances himself sharply, Baldwin saw himself as an exile rather than an expatriate and was chastised rather than admired by others for his explorations of foreign places. And it reminds us really that uh, Baldwin was not the kind of sensibility to kind of stride out looking at the rest of the world and pronouncing confidently on it in the mode of a Hemingway, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, Baldwin, as we're saying there, he kept his focus resolutely on the US in the civil rights era. And it really was a completely different perspective, despite the fact that he was going abroad. And I think it tells us a lot, really, about Baldwin, you know, how he was interrogating himself and the society he came from. He didn't really see the US or his background there as a kind of neutral, stable platform to kind of stride out from Mm -hmm. and make, you know, confident predictions and diagnoses about the rest of the world. But at the same time, there's also this kind of paradoxical side of his life here because he was this black man in, you know, what he called exile. But he also w- was coming from a rather privileged position, you know, he was living for much of his time in, uh, I think, a Bosphorus Yala that was previously owned by an Ottoman pasha. And he was mixing with quite well-to-do Robert College intellectuals here. And also, of course, by this stage, he was uh, quite a successful literary figure. He was a man of means, essentially. He'd achieved literary success and he was quite wealthy so there he was in this kind of interesting even unique position really as a black man in exile but also somewhat privileged there's a quote that you mentioned that he said he he was talking to Yashar Kemal the Mm -hmm. the great 20th century writer and um, uh, you quote him telling Yashar Kemal at one point "Uh, I feel so free in Turkey and to which uh, Kemal responds that's because you're American I think this gets to the kind of core of um, the the position that he was in, really. It's a funny anecdote, even if it is uh, apocryphal
1: yes and and that's brilliant that you're reminding me about that moment because class is really really key here when baldwin got on turkey in the late 61 when he got there he was not very wealthy his his wealth came actually with the publication of another country which still probably is his most known and most best selling book and then the fire next time. So this is the moment when the wealth starts coming in. But after his you know, first couple of novels, his situation was not that great. And he came from dire, dire poverty. He was so poor that he constantly remembered his father not being able to feed his children. So you have a family with two working parents and nine children. Baldwin was the stepchild of the pastor that his mother married when he was about two years of age. And they lived in dire poverty, literally not having enough to eat. And Baldwin was also severely abused by his stepfather. This part of his life is not discussed trust very much, but I think if not for the marvelous influence of Buford Delaney, the African American painter, who is also connected to Istanbul, who was his surrogate father, who was his sort of artistic midwife in many ways, I don't know if we would have gotten, you know, James Baldwin the writer, because there was such need in him for what culture affords a growing mind. Yet his family could not provide him with exposure to theater, to literature, to cinema. So he was a very lucky young man, brilliant student, who was first nurtured by a teacher in his Harlem Elementary School, who then went to this very um, stimulating, wonderful, the Wood Clinton High School, uh, where most of his peers were Jewish, very intellectual, very artistic, uh, meeting people like Emil Kapuya and Saul Stein and Richard Ovid. And so that trajectory, that sort of class transition from the poverty of Harlem to more affluent high school, meeting more affluent friends who also were very intellectually, very artistically inclined. And then Buford Delaney, who when Baldwin was a teenager, sort of opened up the world of black arts to him. These were, I think, decisive factors in making him able to gain the erudition and gain the powers that he had intellectually and artistically. You need to remember, too, that class and race are very important to understanding his physical situation before he left for France. He was not able to go to college. Despite his brilliance, he couldn't get a scholarship because affirmative action didn't exist. He had to support his eight siblings and mother, because his father died in 1943. So he was in a rather tragic situation, economically and artistically. He got a fellowship, most of it he left with his mother, and then he took a boat to France in 1948. By the time he gets to Turkey, he has some literal accomplishments, but he's not the sort of affluent Jimmy Baldwin, whose, you know, glittering presence among the socialites and the literati is marked and pronounced uh, sort of, you know, in Europe and in the U.S. As in the 60s but by 63 64 yes he has the affluence he has the money have a you know entourage and a fairly uh, comfortable lifestyle so i say this to really make you think of how the element of economic security or lack thereof how his abuse as a child how all of that makes us you know realize that it's not that simple His approach to richness of one's pocketbook, like Hemingway's or Fitzgerald's, was not that simple because it was always understood and articulated in terms of his racial and sexual and gendered experience. So I think it's just not that, you know, he was this rich guy from the US in Turkey. It's also that he was running away from racism and homophobia. And If not for his international exposure, his work would not have brought the dividends, the remuneration that we sort of connect to him when we just sort of look at him superficially. And what
0: was the response to Baldwin's race and sexuality in Turkey? Some of his friends and others called him Arab Jimmy, Mm -hmm. and he was a very striking looking person, obviously. So for his remarks that he was happy to be left alone in Istanbul, he must have attracted some attention. What were his experiences of, of racism and homophobia in Turkey?
1: Well, he was very aware of, you know, skin tone difference between himself and the majority of people in Turkey. But I think he quickly realized that he could not transpose his binary understanding of race from the United States, you know, things being black and white, if you will, to Turkey, because even though at first sight, Turks would have seemed, at least some of them, white, you know, in Europe, the color wheel that Baldwin describes in The Fire Next Time, the color wheel in Europe is very different from the American color wheel. I, I think his conception of race was enlarged in Turkey. So there were the superficial experiences being called the Arab or Arab Jimmy, somebody dark-skinned. And of course, there have been Black Turks, sort of historically, but there was that sense of racial difference, if you will, that also existed. And a certain form of racist reaction and perception exists everywhere. It just exists in very different ways. By the time he gets to Turkey, this binary is disrupted because even though people see him as a Black American. They assume he's either a Black Panther, which is ridiculous, he never would have dressed like that, or they thought he was Pele. Pele, the soccer player, uh, the Brazilian soccer star, uh, national treasure, because Baldwin was slight and quick, and perhaps the sort of only reference people had to black bodies was a Brazilian soccer star versus Black Panthers with you know their berets and leather jackets. And and he fitted neither. So so you know his his way of seeing himself changes dramatically when he's in Turkey. And I think he must have been angry and must have been hurt by some of the racialization. And I was actually astonished when in my interview with Angin Jazar, he used the N-word describing Jimmy coming in from his trip, kind of reeking, unkempt, um, disheveled. And, you know, I was at that interview with my then-partner, who was African-American. And, you know, it went, when Engin used the word, he saw how offended my partner, Ersweil, uh, partner was, and, and also my, my surprise. And he said, oh, you know, we just used that word. We never thought about it. But, but then we used Arab and Arab. So, of course, semantically, they kind of mean the same thing, but it's like the difference between N-word and Negro, right? So there is a degree of offense. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't think Baldwin thought that his Black body was seen the same way, but I think that was also part of the trajectory of his intellectual development and his artistic development of what it is to be a Black American body in the world at the time, and how he wrestled with it, and how he kept trying to understand it in new ways, in ways that let him grow, but that also let him learn from other cultures and from experience.
0: There's an episode of his time in Istanbul that's very interesting um particularly a symbol of his engagement with the Cultural figures that he was moving among at the time. In 1969 and 1970, mm-hmm. Baldwin directed a play mm-hmm. um, called Fortune and Men's Eyes by a, a writer called John Herbert. And uh, this was in Istanbul. It was with Engin Cezar, who you mentioned there. Mm-hmm. And um, as you describe it in the book, this uh, caused quite a stir and had quite a big impact on the local theatre scene, and Baldwin directed that play. And in the book, you examine the circumstances of this production, its staging, and reception. Just talk about this episode of Baldwin's time in Istanbul, and what we can take from it.
1: Oh, that's a great question. And as you know, I have a whole thick chapter about um, his couple of years as a theatre director and a theatre personality. Baldwin was a kind of writer who was not stuck in one genre. He was interested in writing any and everything, and indeed he tried his hand at any literary genre, including drama. So he wrote three plays, um, and the last of them, The Welcome Table, was begun in Turkey and was partially inspired by his experience directing Fortune and Men's Eyes, which in Turkish translation became Friend of the Fallen. That play is a very interesting piece of literature by the Canadian John Herbert, you've mentioned already. And it had quite a following in the late 60s. It was staged in New York, it was staged in Los Angeles and in London. And I believe it was Ali Poirazolo, uh, one of the actors involved in the play, who was gay, saw it in London and he immediately called them in Ginchazar and said, look, we have to get this play done. It's very interesting. It's about young men in a pen- Penitentiary or some kind of a juvenile institution and it's perfect and, and we should have it done in Istanbul and then Gini immediately said we should give it to the Arab, we should have Jimmy have a look and uh, direct it Baldwin had his second play, Blues for Mr. Charlie he also apprenticed with a couple of playwrights um, and, and you know was involved with um actor studio uh, group as well so he was involved with theater he used it as a literary genre but he also was very much interested in the sort of situational power of theater to communicate messages about the human condition to also teach people to a certain degree what it is to be human and how to be human in the circumstances that, you know, for some people would be horrific. So Baldwin's experience with the play, I think, gave him a unique opportunity to really, quote-unquote, do theatre the way he wanted to. And I, you know, I talked to Oktay Balamir, who was one of the translators of the play into Turkish. I talked with Ali Poyrazolu, I talked with Zeynep Oral and with Engine, and release, of course. And uh, from all of the stories, these wonderful encounters with people who are part of this enterprise. I learned that Baldwin was sort of transposed into a mode of creativity that he had not tried before, that he sort of made as he went along, uh, and that involved, for the first three weeks of so-called rehearsal, sitting in a literary seminar, discussing the characters, discussing the play, as if they were students in a literature class, (laughs) you know, the way I teach, uh, let's say, a play uh, with my students. And before they started rehearsing for those three weeks, he wrote the treatments for each character, but he also pushed them, sometimes punishingly, to articulate the feelings, to articulate these hard-to-describe emotions of the characters. And because the play is about gender in many ways and about transgressions of gender and how it's made and how it's part of what we conceive of as power. I think it provided a really fertile ground for him to conceptualize masculinity. So Baldwin did pretty much everything he wanted in that play. He worked on the stage set design, he designed the iron bars that would be clanged and shut with very noisily during the play. He enlisted Dom Cherry, the renowned jazz musician who was at the time travelling through Europe and, and whom literally he supposedly encountered by the German embassy near Taksim Square to write the soundtrack. And he also, by having impressed onto the actors the importance of interpretation and close reading and of entering the character's mind through discussion before taking that character, to the stage, put them in a a situation where, at least from the actors I spoke to, they had never been before, where they felt they were transformed into those characters because of the literary seminar introduction, but also because of Goldwyn's passion to really enter the minds and the bodies of those young men. And I think this freedom to direct... To collaborate on the soundtrack, to collaborate on stage design, to kind of get a free reign to create a live event, sort of unrepeatable, you know, every performance is a different iteration, is a different enactment of the vision that he had of the play. I think that gave him tremendous satisfaction, and it also taught him quite a bit.
0: And his later life was marked by living in another country outside the U.S., France. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived his later life in southern France, which is where he died. And you've also written more recently a book on Baldwin's time in France, I believe. I wonder if you could just compare Baldwin's life and experiences in Turkey and in France. What were the effects of both on his work? How do these two uh, exiles compare with each other?
1: Oh, that's a wonderful question, and in fact, uh, a a complete answer would take yet another volume to write, so I'll try to be brief. I think that by the end of his Turkish decade, so to speak, Baldwin was exhausted by the pace of life he was living, the travel, the kind of intensity of social life, also the intensity of cities he was living in. And he also was experiencing health problems. And in the biographies, especially in Lemings, there are mentions of suicide attempts. And there are also mentions of severe bouts of depression. Again, topics we haven't pursued very much. Um, until recently, you know, in his life. But between the kind of hustle and bustle of Istanbul and the complete backwater in the 70s of St. Paul de Vence in Provence, where he ended up after Turkey, you know, the environment couldn't be more different. At the same time, Baldwin really needed peace and quiet, and he needed to withdraw from the very busy uh, life of a transatlantic commuter. He was ill with hepatitis when he was was finishing his stay in Istanbul. And um, that was when he was also writing the volume published in 1972, No Name in the Street, a very important and still underestimated work, I think. And he needed a place to recover from the blow of well Martin Luther King's death, Malcolm X's, Medgar Evers in reverse order, that were taking place throughout the sixties. So these were personal friends, and he was also followed by the FBI, I'm sure you're aware of the large file of over seven hundred pages. And that also was published recently with all the reductions, of course. Uh, So Baldwin was in a, he was on a crossroads and and I think he needed to feel at home and to put down roots a bit. And surprisingly enough, St. Paul Devans happened to be the place. Uh, He was advised to go there by Mary Painter, who was an economist. She was a New Yorker. I am not sure if they had a sexual affair, but have on very good authority that Baldwin came close to. actually contemplating marriage with her. So they were very close friends. And uh, when he was ill in Paris and his friends shipped him to a hotel in Saint-Paul-de-Vance, she uh, advised him to just rent a house or rent some rooms in a house and recuperate there. So he went to France because he was ill. He also abandoned the hustle and bustle of Istanbul for this very sleepy kind of backwater village of Saint-Paul-de-Vance. And I think because it was a backwater, because was peaceful, St. Paul de Vance allowed him to recuperate, but to also rethink what he wanted to write, how he wanted to write. And because he fell in love with the house, with the village, and he was cherished there, and I'm not, you know, romanticizing Provence, but also a place that tended to be conservative, that was racist. The very host of the house where he was renting rooms that later became his Mademoiselle Fau, she was a racist. She was a Pienois, a white Algerian who felt she was kicked out of her birthright and birthplace by dark skinned people. So when Baldwin started renting uh rooms from her, she would barricade herself uh you know with a dresser pushed against the door to make sure that black man did not threaten her and whatnot. With time, Baldwin completely charmed her and she completely fell in love with him and they became very close. So this in miniature shows you the kinds of effects his genius, but also his charisma and his intellectual prowess had on people around him. He was able to create, to create a sort of social circle almost immediately. Uh, with people who wanted to listen to him, but who also wanted to argue with him, and who, once they got to know him and read his work, were completely fascinated, if not seduced by him. And this has been, of course, the dream of being settled and having a home and being rooted in one place that he had been chasing his whole life. And even though it was contrary to his experience and love for big cities, in that village, with a beautiful garden, uh, with a kind of slowness of life, He really reinvented himself. He really tapped into his creativity uh, for the last decade and a half of his writing. And he became part of a community. He really felt himself finally at home. And he, I think... Decided to stop running. Um, Of course, he still traveled, but not as much. And you need to remember as well that in the early 70s, he was very unpopular in the United States. Eldridge Cleaver wrote horrifically vitriolic, homophobic sludge against him in Soul and Ice, which was published in 68. It sort of became fashionable to take pot shots at Jimmy Baldwin at that time. So he was not popular in the US, this sort of homophobic reaction to his works, which became more and more open about sexuality and gender, by the way. But I think he really found a place to reinvent himself as a writer. And those late interviews uh, are filled with plans, with looking forward to the 21st century. I, I just distinctly recall it this very moment in one of the interviews he says, Look, I will just be in my eighties in the twenty first century. I have a lot of work to do. I'm still very young for a writer. He says it five, six years before he dies. So that place rejuvenated him and also made him realize that you no, know, sometimes the vision you have for yourself isn't what's really good for you, isn't what nurtures you. And maybe trying something different might have amazing results. And and that's why. I think he, uh, you know, settled into that later life in a village. And I think he also found an amazing pace to write new work and to be really experimental, to really push the envelope in terms of literary genre. But I think for the authorial art, that small place, the peacefulness and slowness of it had remarkable results on his writing, on the one hand. And on the other, in biographical terms, it allowed him to rejuvenate to reconnect to life and to pleasures of life, such as, you know, walking barefoot in the garden or taking an orange from an orange tree. And there are, you know, a few photos I reproduce in the second book that show him very happily prancing around the garden or inside the house the documentary by Karen Thorson and Doug Dempsey, and James Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket, which they began when he was still alive and then finished after his very fast passing away in 1987. That documentary has beautiful footage from the house and and also glimpses him in his new pastoral surroundings. He simply let his world become smaller and intimate and very deeply rooted and it worked for him. But I don't think he would have ended up there without his decade in Turkey, without Istanbul.
0: That was Magdalena Zaborowska. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 119. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. And do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Also, finally, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Atkoç and Diego Kupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. You can find Turkey Recap by searching on Google to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.